when we know our story and where we've come from and what we share, we really understand each other better. We'd have a much, a much more peace in this world if we all actually listened to each other's stories. And I, I heard a saying years ago, the only difference between two people is their story. And that's the truth. We are all the same, but our stories are different. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Connect With Confidence podcast. And today we are connecting with such a beautiful soul. I'm really delighted to introduce you to my friend, Nina Angelo. Nina and I were friends on Facebook and on the phone before we actually got to meet face to face. So welcome, Nina. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Kerry. It's a pleasure. Uh, I have goosebumps already. I just know that this is going to be a conversation with lots of goosebumps. Um, and I have your book here, Don't Cry, Dance. And it's stunning. I just love um, so much about this. So the subtitle is A Memoir of War, Love and Forgiveness. And I just feel like these are themes that we really need to unpack and converse about and, and share within ourselves you know with those around us not just like on the podcast in a in a more public space so I'm open for an open-hearted conversation today that's you know a little scary and vulnerable sometimes when we don't know where it's going to go but Nina do you want to give us a little bit of your background I mean you're you're known as an incredible creative on the central coast New South Wales and you know far far beyond that um Mm. but just tell us a little of your family history I think it's so important to be aware that when we're passing people in the street, when we're connecting with people briefly, we just don't know where they've come from. We don't know. In my most recent podcast with Sally Foley-Lewis, we talked about how we don't know what bags people are carrying or what burdens yeah. they might have. And you have a really unique perspective because of your upbringing, your parents' lives, uh, which are covered in this beautiful book. So I'm just going to hand over to you, Nina. You're an extraordinary <laughs> storyteller. <laughs> Thanks, so Kerry. There's always, there's always stories to tell and I'm passionate about stories because when we know our story and where we've come from and what we share, we really understand each other better. You know, we'd have a much, a much more peace in this world if we all actually listened to each other's stories. And I, I heard a saying years ago, the only difference between two people is their story. And that's the truth. We are all the same, but our stories are different. Where we yes. come from, etc. I guess, you know, as a child, you know, we grow up and we think that's the way it is for everybody. Yeah. But I realise now how unique my um, childhood upbringing was. Uh, I was born in Athens in Greece in early 47. My parents were both Holocaust survivors. And they actually met in Auschwitz in the camps. My mother was a young Polish girl and my father was a Greek, a Spanish Greek Jewish man. And they, she was 16 years younger than my dad. And they first met in the camp where my dad made a pass at her. My father was an elite prisoner in Auschwitz. And there were only about 70 of them. And it was called the Canada or the Canada Commando. And the reason he was, was because in Greece, he'd actually joined the Socialist Party when he was 11. He did not 
uh, practice Judaism, even though his mother did, she went to the synagogue regularly. Her father, um, my father's grandfather, he was a rabbi in, um, in, in Salonika. So they were from Thessaloniki. There were 70,000 Jews who lived there in peace with all the community um, in Northern Greece. So it, when he was born, it was still part of Turkey. And then it became part of Greece. So, you know, he spoke a lot, a lot of languages. And out of those 70,000 Jews, 99.4% were exterminated, were taken in the cattle trains up to the camps and killed. So that was all my, my paternal family. I did not know their story. My dad never talked about that very much until about how many years, probably about seven years ago, uh, friends came to visit and uh, we were talking about family. They were a Greek couple. They went back to Sydney and they went on the computer and they did research. They found seven hours of interviews with my dad in the Holocaust Museum in Washington in the United States of America. Now, my mother, this young Polish girl who was 11, she too didn't have a traditional Jewish upbringing in a religious sense. Culturally, they were Jewish. I mean, it's a culture of people. My mum, when she was 11, she had her first sign of anti-Semitism when she was walking with her girlfriend down the street and these boys were coming up towards them. They came up to my mum, slapped her across the face, spat on her, threw her to the ground and called her a dirty Jew. She did not know what hit her. She'd never been hit before, but to be called that, her innocence left at mm. that time. And she actually went and started studying and looking into why this was happening because this was just when the Nazis were just starting she was 16 when they actually came in and they took all her mother and her father went to fight for the uh, Polish-English army. So he went, um, they were doctors, her mother and her father were both doctors. And uh, so he went off to fight and my grandmother had a disability, a hip displacement. So she was one of the, the first to go when they came, went along with the, the trucks and collected all the Jews and took them to the camps. Now, my mum was on the run as a young girl, like she was 16 when it started, uh, under false papers for many years until about 1944, 43, 44, when she was caught and she was taken up to the camps. Now, they both, my dad made a pass at her because being an elite prisoner, the role of the Canada commando, and they called it Canada or Canada because they saw Canada as the, mil, the, the land of milk and honey. They didn't know about Australia then. But, <laughs> you know, to them, that was like such a free place. Their job was to be on the platforms. They were the only prisoners that were allowed on the platforms when the transport was coming in with all the cattle trains belching out all these people. And their job was to go into the, into the trains and collect all their suitcases, the food they bought, their everything, because they thought that they were going to 
be put somewhere and they'd start all over again. So mm. they took the, the most, you know, what would mean to them, their money, their diamonds, their gold, all of that. And their role was to collect them from them. They didn't know what was going to be happening to them. But after they collected them, they were also very savvy. And the Kannada commando were made up of socialists. And because my dad was in the Socialist Party, that's how they put him in there too. So by doing that, they could secrete food and cigarette, all sorts, you name it, into suitcases because there were so many. And they bribed all the guards in the camp. So by bribing the guards, they had their own barracks. They could get away with anything. And they had food mm. because people bought food. And so with that food, they would then encourage the women. And that's how my dad made a pass at my mum, who knocked him back. But, you know, they had blankets, they had everything, and they could set up a little area and, you know, just sort of have a hug and a cuddle. I mean, this is where they were was like hell on earth mm. so my mum wrote her story uh left it for us she started in the late 60s she wanted to leave something so that we knew about our family yeah and her father had done the same for her so she knew how important it was because as she said when you're young you don't want to know about your parents life or anything you're too busy just enjoying your own life and, you know, your friends, your school, you know, life is good. So she left this for us. And um, she got to the part. She was typing on an old typewriter yeah. uh, on her own. And she got to the part where the Gestapo got her. And she could not go any further. Yeah. And I remember saying to her, Mum, you know, I will, um, how about we tape it? And, you know, we'll interview you. And, and then we'll have the rest of the story. But my mum had a cancer and she was only given a short time to live, but she managed to get through it. She was only 61 when she died in 1985. Mm. And what happened was I kept thinking, if I interview her quickly, she'll die quickly. You know, oh, like in my yeah. head it was, yeah. you know, once she's told her whole story, well, then she might go. And so I kept putting it off and putting it off. In the end, my uh, brother-in-law, actually, um, he ended up finishing off the interviews. And they gave me the tapes. Um, in, As I said, in 85, she passed. Mm. I didn't know what happened. She gave me the bit of papers that she had typed all her story. I put it somewhere. It, I, I just didn't know. I was too busy. A single mum of twins, just surviving, took a lot of time. But as things were going to be, in 1988, my house burnt down in Terrigal. Mm -hmm. I was working on a very big event that we were putting on there called Homage to the Elements on the Rocks. Yeah. I'm a, a community artist, so we had about another eight artists, all in music, dance, props, theatre, and all the community wrote this play. And it was on the rocks at Terrigal, under the Skillion was a backdrop of the ocean. It was a huge event. Yeah. And I had spearheaded it, I imagined it, I saw it, and I managed to get it. 500 people were involved in the performance itself. 
5,000 turned up for that one performance. Wow. And it was quite a big job to get people to, to get funding, to get counsel, to back something that they did not have any idea what it was about. <laughs> but it was about, look at where we live. Look at this place. Yeah. The ocean. Look at the rocks. Don't just walk on them. They're sacred, you know, so we were dancing to them. We were singing to them. Huge performance. But two weeks before, about three weeks before, that's when my house burnt down Mm. and I lost everything. And we were just getting ready for a public meeting. And with that, somehow all the work, most of the work had been done and there were two weeks of workshops on site at the Terrigal Skillion in that area. We had a clubhouse, we had containers, big tents, everything was being done there. And people carried me along on that. So the performance did go ahead, but I, as I said, I lost lost everything. Mm -hmm. I think it's the first time my dad actually looked at me and said, you did this because he always used to call me cuckoo because he never got me, none of my parents. They loved me. They gave me so much love. You know, I was their first new life when they had lost everyone. Yeah. You know, and and my mum, she, after my dad made a pass at her, they met again in Paris as refugees in the Red Cross canteen. Wow. Where he saw her and he remembered her and he called her by her name. And that's how they they connected. Um, They were engaged in Paris on Bastille Day in 1945. And uh, then uh, my father tried to do all he could to get her to Greece. But after the war, everything was locked down, just like a lot of Australia is now with the COVID, you know, every state. So eventually, you know, she did get to, to Greece, to Athens. She didn't speak the language. She didn't understand the culture and she was pregnant with me and she was going through all her trauma, all that post-traumatic because there were no counselling or anything like that. And so I was in utero when she was going, both of them were going through what that had happened to them. So I realise now as a girl child how this intergenerational trauma comes through the cells yeah you know and as women we have all our eggs in our ovaries our cells every cell has a memory and when that cell becomes somebody that sits in there and that memory's in there yeah I'm mentioning that because after I found her story and I then through this friend got my father's story then combined it with my own I I really learned about who we were my parents spoke 13 languages between them wow Kerry and it was for me it was nothing you know my mom it was I mean when I think about it my father was an importer he bought the first televisions into Australia for channel nine before it even went live yeah first uh, magnetic sound for the film industry in Australia, the reel-to-reel tapes, stylus, because he had contacts all over Europe, England and America because he was an importer. Yeah. But no one in Australia had all those contacts. 
So this little wog man, little tiny man, yeah. they didn't like dealing with, you know, this new Australian with a strange accent, but he had what they wanted and what they needed. Yeah, he had the contact. Yeah. And I was reading in the book actually this morning um, some of his comments about that and, you know, connecting with Australian businesses. Uh, but I also, just going back to what you were saying before yeah. uh, when you said he didn't get you, but uh, I could sense the pride when he was talking about things that um, his daughter Nina was doing. It was beautiful. That is true. <laughs> yeah. And when I was listening, when, when I got these um, transcripts, and um, I went to Margaret River, Western Australia, where mm. I went to a, uh, a, writer's, um, a writer's studio and I yeah. sat there seven weeks and listening to my dad, who died in 93, all in French, getting angry because this woman, a woman from the Jewish Museum, um, who was collecting history of the Holocaust, yeah. she was determined to get my dad to talk about it. And he yeah. didn't want to, but I'm so glad she did. She pushed him. Yeah. Because that's how I found that out. It's extraordinary. And you've reminded me, I was reading a book recently about another um, prisoner. It's interesting that you use the word elite prisoner because when we attach the word elite to anything, we just think, oh, well, that's good. Um, and certainly there were benefits, but let's not remember, let's not forget that he was a prisoner. And, and I was reading how, you know, these prisoners, whether they're called elite prisoners or, you know, the senior prisoners that had mm. responsibility for the others, um, you know, their life was still in danger also. Yeah, but they didn't tell their stories. And it's only now that some of those stories are beginning to come out because there was so much judgment towards them by other prisoners because yeah. they were perceived as, you know, safer or, um, you know, and lucky mm. and, and maybe in cahoots with the, the Nazis, which is uh, not true at all, but they were, you know, staying alive also. And yeah, um, yeah so it's, it's so powerful, I think, to, to get those stories that are from a very different perspective because, you know, I've grown up with lots of World War II stories and, and Holocaust survivor stories. But that has been a missing piece, the elite prisoners. Yes, and that's why they wanted to interview him. Yeah, because I think it's really important to get that perspective too because people can be, you know, really between a rock and a hard place. And yeah. other people can look at them and say, well, it's all right for them because they've got this elite position, but <laughs> they can yeah. still be, you know, having their life in danger every moment. Yeah, and, but because of that too, he managed to save a few people. Yes. Yes, and that's what I was reading in this other story, just extraordinary, because with that position uh, yeah. comes, comes some power to yeah. help the other prisoners. Yeah. And, you know, you just survive, don't you? You do anything to survive. Yeah, that's right. And, and so, yeah, for you to hear that story being unpacked, like did you hear the, um, the pride that he had in you? Well, I was so surprised at you mentioning that when I saw that. You know, I thought... Because I remember that night when we did the homage to the elements that, that night and it was huge, enormous yeah. lighting towers. There were dancers who were dressed like the rocks. They were covered in ochres and that the rocks were coming to life. Oh, wow. The rocks were undulating on the ground and people were, they, the dancers, it was quite extraordinary. And I remember at the end of it all, and there were fireworks and everything. It was a massive thing. Yeah. At the end of it, I remember my dad coming up to me and looking me in the eyes and going, you did this? Yeah. Like, 
like, really, you did this? And then he just looked at me and he said, congratulations, just like that. <laughs> and that was the first time my dad ever sort of got it, got wow. me, Yeah, you know, because I was so different. They gave me all I needed for my art. I used to paint on my pillowcases. I was always into my fabric. I'm just... They didn't get me. I'm the only artist in the family going way back now, I, I see. Yeah. But they loved me and they supported me and they did what they could. And that is the sort of life that we had. And yeah. I had lots of love and affirmation. There yeah. was never a time that I'd walk up to my mum or dad, no matter how busy they were, where they wouldn't stop and give you a hug and yeah. tell you they love you and give yeah. you a kiss and you go. It only takes a couple of seconds. Yeah. I guess I'm saying this now because I realise there's so many people who have got this trauma that's coming up now Yeah. with COVID that's brought up so much trauma. Yeah. And I understand so after doing the book, I'll, I'll just go back a little bit because after I finished the book and it took me three and a half years of yeah. learning about my family, of trying to understand who they were, of getting their names. Remember, they all died as a number. Yeah. They, they didn't have their names when they died. And I even remember when I was doing the last proofread after the printer had done the first print and said, look, I want you to check it. And I went to my village in Fiji where I spent a lot of time and I was doing the proofread there and I was reading it aloud. I never did that before. Yeah. And I heard it aloud and I remember stopping and I closed my eyes and I just said to all my family, I said, I'm honouring you here. You're not forgotten. You may have died as a number, but your name is in the book now and it will always be there. And I'm here because of you. And I basically, you know, I thank them and go to the light or, you know, it, how the trauma and the tragedy. And I did. And I went and lay down straight after. Oh, oh yeah, I've got tears rolling. <laughs> <laughs> I went and lay down and they, I saw in this black space mm. in front of my eyes, they all started coming towards me. I just started seeing all these figures coming yeah. out of the dark towards wow. me yeah and I got up and I started doing this art piece I called it ancestors I've got it yeah and I just started framing and doing the lines around them that was all I needed to do so little did I know that after I hadn't been really well and then I went back home and I had you know got through the printed things I had a big launch in the Jewish Museum in Sydney because they it was very important that the professor uh, Conrad Queet who's the emeritus professor of the Holocaust studies there that he stamped it that they read it that that it was mm. good because I wanted to go into the schools yeah you know it started, they do study Holocaust now in the schools so I wanted mm -hmm. to talk to it and I I had a big launch at the Jewish Museum and then I had a launch here in our library near where I live. 
over 200 people came to that launch. The library couldn't believe it. They'd never seen so many people go in there. I was astounded. My family were there, but I was not well. I had been losing weight. I was shaking. I just, something just wasn't right. I thought that I was actually um, grieving because I don't do grief very well, but I really Mm. thought I was grieving and then my family insisted I go to the doctor. I didn't even have a doctor. That's mm-hmm. how healthy and well I was. Mm. And then they sent me to have scans and they picked up that I had this stage four lymphoma, a cancer in my blood. And they said I had rogue blood cells. I sort of see them like little Pac-Men going, nip, 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 and they yeah. just munch away. And I could see on this um, scan how bad it was all through my pelvic area up my spine down there in my legs and I was then determined because I don't have any fear I knew then I had to go through the chemo and I was very determined to use the medicinal cannabis oil mm-hmm. I just knew with all the research that this was going to to help and that's what got me through and while I was doing it while I was having the chemo I was doing my art piece, my second piece. So the first one was the ancestors. And then when I was having doing the chemo, I thought, okay, I'm going to see this this stuff going into me as liquid gold going through my veins, cleaning me away and clearing me. And so I started as I was sitting there, I'm actually doing my art I'm an intuitive artist, so I don't plan anything. It just was. I called this bloodlines, and you could actually see the cells being smashed and new cells regenerating, and I was just, it was all happening in there. Yeah. Then I spent about eight months lying here, healing, feeling terrible, and really, you know, losing more weight, lost all my hair. I had curly red hair like out to there yeah yeah I've seen photos I know so (laughs) losing all my hair all of that and funnily enough Kerry I always said there's only two constants in my life everything else is a movable changeable feast I never know two constants my coffee in the morning and my hair yeah well I went off coffee totally wow and my hair fell out yeah I went, okay, we're not meant to have constants about anything because that's how life is. We don't know what it's going to throw at us. Yeah, and that's a good preparation for 2020, 2021 because, yeah, those those little routines that were so important to people. Yes, we have to let go of everything that we thought was solid because there's nothing. The ground's moving under us. You know, we don't really know. But I embrace change. I'm really good at change. Yeah. I I can, you know, I will never do something the same. You know, I won't sit in the same place. I won't have my shower at the same time. You know, I won't eat at the same time. It was just my coffee and my hair. Yeah. (laughs) But that that sort of uh, passed. With this realising lying here, and thinking, where did this come from? You know, like, where did this come from? And it was then I realised that this is what they call intergenerational uh, trauma, yeah, epigenetics, and um, I only learned that word. And that's why I got this, you know, uh, this is what I was dealing with, mm. this is what had happened to me. 
coming through it in my determination with story, I was writing it up, not as a victim. I sort of wanted to do a little book and call, help me get this elephant out of the room. Because oh, that's a good one. Because I found that people who had cancer, who had gone down, they hide away. They don't want to talk about it. Yeah. They don't want to deal with, you know, they just. And I thought, this isn't a sexually transmitted disease or anything. <laughs> this is, you know, yeah. this is what my journey. And because I'm a storyteller, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to document my journey, but yeah. in a positive way, not in a victim sense. Yeah. Yes, this is happening. But if I didn't have all the amazing friends that set up things for me, people that would come and give me foot massages, you know, there was just so much love around me. Yeah. And they made a beautiful coat for me that took all these women weeks. They would get together and they painted and they sewed it. And it was about, it was, I was so overwhelmed. And they presented it to me on the 1st of January 2020 when I could hardly move. I could hardly walk, but they got me. They took me down to my happy place at the lagoon here at McMaster's. Yeah. I had it set up with flags and colour and the women were all wearing bright colours and flowers and they'd bought food. There was a woman playing a, a bowl, a crystal bowl. and. It was the biggest honouring of me. It was so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I'm like there with my bald head, not well. But it was so overwhelming. I thought I was going to melt into a puddle of overwhelm on the ground because I didn't know how to take it. Yeah. So you've been giving and creating and doing so much for so many people for years and came back. And it's all about you and just, I mean, so much preparation, so much love going into that so totally what have you learned from that experience a big lesson on that day I looked at these women and I learned that if you haven't got hair you'd get channeled more messages I understand the Buddhists you know really it was you know and I remember saying to them I know us women are so good at giving and doing for others yeah but we're really lousy at receiving yeah we don't receive very well yeah. And and then I said to them, what you're doing for me here now, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm finding it really difficult to receive. But I realize now that when people want to do something for you, it's them giving you their love. Yeah. And when we re return it, so people would ring and say, look, I've made a pot of soup. I'll bring you some. And you go, no, don't go out of your way. I'm fine. I've got dinner. You know, everything's fine. But what I didn't realise, or I made a piece of cake or I'll bring you a bit of pie or, and you'd say, oh, no, it's fine. What I realised at that moment was that is their way of saying, I just want to acknowledge you and yeah. tell you I love you. Yeah. And then we knock it back. We give it back to them. Yeah. And that's, that was a really big lesson. Don't ever return somebody who wants to give you something, their time, a bit of food or whatever. Don't mm -hmm. ever say, no, I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, and I think we've all done that. But we also 
on reflecting, we can think of times where we've wanted to give to somebody and they've said, no, I'm fine. Exactly that. Exactly. Because we know that, yeah, we just want to give this gift. We feel inspired in the moment or maybe we've been planning it for a while. Um, Yeah, let's talk about the little everyday moments. How has this impacted uh, just the way you walk down the street, whether it's strangers you see or people that, you know, you've known around the community for years? Uh, What are you noticing about interactions with people? When I was going through it, um, there are some people that just didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. And they they wouldn't ring because they'd keep putting it off because they didn't know what to say. And I'm going, yeah. And this happens a lot. If somebody yeah. dies close to you, and people go, I don't know what to say. They say yeah. it's just a matter of ringing up and saying, I'm thinking of you. Yeah, and I don't know yeah. what to say. Are you okay? okay. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. But don't, because you give yourself a hard time because then people felt guilty that they hadn't. And as time went by, they felt worse about it. And then you put it on the two hard basket and then it hangs around. And then if they see you out and about. Yeah. I don't want anyone to feel like that with me, Kerry. Yeah. You know, I, I'm into truth and it's okay. Whatever you're feeling is okay. Yeah. But, do you know, acknowledge, accept, because every woman said, you're right, Nina, we are good at giving, we're not we don't receive very well. I hope a few of them learned from that. Yeah. Um, and I think being open. I don't think, yeah. you know, I think when we're going through and I understood that it was this trauma that was bringing this up in me that I didn't even know about, mm. I started realising that I think everybody carries some sort of trauma within yeah. them yeah. through their family line, through their childhood, Mm-hmm. So if it comes intergenerationally through their mother or grandmother, then that person through their fear, and it's often wars that have created this. Yeah. For men, you think of a man coming back, First World War, mm. and totally traumatised by it. They've killed, they've watched mm. their mates being blown up. I mean, horrible stuff. Yeah. And they come back and there's nothing to help them through this. Yeah. They go back into their home their wife, their children, but they're different people. Yeah. They totally closed down because they don't share that. My ex-husband was a Vietnam vet. You know, I copped that. So I understand it from many angles. Mm. And so the, the women would just walk very slowly, precariously. The children, then the men would start drinking. Mm. They'd want their mates around. They'd be angry. Because they're angry with what's happened and what they've seen. They don't want to share it. They don't want Mm. to talk about it to their wives. So everybody starts feeling it. Then that gets passed down to the next generation. So if that man and that woman don't know how to love, don't know how to give a hug, Mm. don't know how to tell their kids, I love you, I believe in you, that's good, what's good, what? You know, they hear so much negativity because it's within the parent. It's not their fault. That's the trauma that they're carrying. But as a child, you don't know that. Yeah. And so as a child, you put it away, you tuck it away, and you start realising this undercurrent of stuff, but you just get on with your life. You don't go there. Yeah. 
that's where I went to afterwards. Um, after I realised about trauma, I'd hear people getting angry and COVID brought this up because all of a sudden people were locked inside. Mm -hmm. People who they keep busy. If you keep mm -hmm. busy all the time, you don't have to go to those places that cause that pain when you're a child. And all of a sudden you're locked down inside. Mm -hmm. with your family and your children you can't go to the gym and you can't go to the club and you can't go to the footy and all the things that you do and the pub to deflect and you go home and you get into that normal habit of life it all came up during COVID yeah and it started bringing up the trauma and people started getting angry and angry at home and the women mm. with the children trying to and you couldn't get out you know, you could just go for a little walk. So I then realised that there needs to address this trauma through story and yeah. through art. And so once I managed to beat this lymphoma and right on my last chemo, that was just when COVID started. Mm. I remember going into the hospital for my last chemo and thinking, please don't not do it because the, all the hospital mm. was sort of like having meetings and whatever yeah. was going on. But I did, I did do that. And after I've, I got through that, I got the all clear and I did my final art piece. So I had ancestors, which is what brought it up. I had the bloodlines, which was the clearing mm -hmm. of this cancer. And then I had one called transformation, which I got the two uh, scans, the scan where I was absolutely full of it and yeah. the scan where there was nothing left. And yeah. I made them into an art piece and I called that transformation. And so they tell my story in art. That's amazing. And so this is this the exhibition that you did sometime? Was it earlier this year? Yes, I had it. Um, and I don't normally do exhibitions, but because I've been doing a lot of art around everyday things yeah. that I was uh, using, because I'm a, being a fabric artist, you know, yeah. I worked with big pieces of material. Yeah. I worked with what I called the, what I called it the fabric of our lives, our stories yeah. on material. Yeah. banners and flags and what brings community together and that's what yeah. I did yeah um but now here I am with a little bit of black paper like that and a Posca pen that yeah. was like all I had and all I could do and I was sort of lying in bed and as yeah. I'm healing and I'm doing I'm doing my art yeah. and so I had the exhibition from that and um which which told the story uh, then I started these um, story circles for women and, they, and there were only seven in a group and they had to tell the story of childhood, yeah. a time in their lives that was a transformative time, a time that something happened, a memorable time, you know, be it bad, good or whatever, in a safe place. Yeah. So I would open it, I would facilitate it and, what ended up happening is, as an artist, I started collecting rocks and I thought afterwards the women can paint a rock after they've told their story. And 
this is how it all talked to me. So I went down to the little beach down here and I was picking up some rocks one day and one of the rocks talked to me in my head. Yeah. Now, I don't hear voices like, you know, yeah. I know I'm a bit different, but this rock said, do you know how many thousands of years I've been here? And I remember sort of stopping and going, oh, my goodness, this yeah. rock's talking to me. I said, do you know how many oceans I've been in the bottom? Do you know how many beaches I've lain on? Yeah. And I thought, this rock is conscious. It's telling me. And I had this epiphany. Of course, I'm standing on a rock. Our earth is a rock. Yeah. She is so forgiving. No matter what they do to her, they cut down her trees, they, they pillage and rape her, they, you know, all that has been done. And she comes back and she forgives and she feeds us and she gives us beauty and she keeps nourishing us. And I went, I'm on a rock. We're all on a rock. Yeah. This rock is important. Yeah. So that's where it came through from a rock to a hard place and beyond. And so after the story circle, so I'd get the women to pick a rock. Yeah. And that was theirs, the one that would call them. And they would hold that rock in their hand while they were telling their story. And I was noticing that they were... They were, they were really caressing the rock and putting their story into the rock. And then they'd often cry because most of the women have had some trauma as a child. And this was a safe place. You know, they were sexually and physically abused and ignored. And it amazes me how many. But that rock, I said to them, if you shed a tear, catch a tear in the rock. Let that rock be your talisman, be you, be your story. And remember, it's been through thousands of years and it's come back and it's here in your hand. And then after we've done the stories and we've connected to each other, we have some lunch. I blind, they blindfolded. I take them on a journey from the left side of their brain to the right side because the left side is the critical side. I'm not creative. I'm not good at this. I look terrible today. Look at that person over there. They're fat. They're skinny, you know, all of that. Um, it's that part, the analytical part. The right side, you see, I'm a right brain girl in the left brain world and it's been a bit tough at times. Yeah. Right side is that creative side. It's the side when we listen to music and our foot just starts tapping to the music. We don't think about it. We don't go logical. Oh, am I, am I tapping wrong or am I tapping right? That's when your left side pops in and it's questioning. Yeah. yeah. So I take them. I take them on a journey, and blindfolded, and then I give them five little bits of paper. Never, ever give people who haven't done any art or anything a big bit of paper and say, just draw your feelings on it. <laughs> it is there. It's really in your face. That's I daunting. Yeah. Small bit of paper like that. Yeah. Five types of music. Okay. Going from classical, 40 seconds each piece, classical, folk music, country and Western, rock and roll. You know, there's... Five different types, 40 seconds, blindfolded with a pencil. They just let it flow. 
go with the music, do with the music. Don't even worry about it because the minute you do, you know where it's coming from. You start judging it, yeah. And then we take the blindfold off. They have the colours there. They pick three colours and they start going over it with colour to the music that yeah. they can see. And then they will select one of those, a little part of one of those. Yeah. And that is their design that they put on their rock. That's so beautiful. And they sit around and they paint the rock. And that is them. Yeah. They carry that around and that's to remind them once you acknowledge the pain, the hurt and where it comes from, your healing starts. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, Nina, I'm conscious of the time and I yeah. can talk to you all day. Uh, so if I was to present you with a couple of post-it notes, just to put a couple of words on. So the first post-it note is going back to something you said before about, you know, they don't know how to love. So if somebody is listening and says, well, how do I love? How do I start being more loving, start expressing more love? Can you give us like three little lines or words on a post-it note to, uh, to get people thinking about how can I love? I think the first thing is to listen mm -hmm. and, and listen, really hear what people are saying and yes. listen to yourself, listen yes. to your heart. If your fear comes in the way, it, it will block it out. Yes. Go into that space. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. If in yes. doubt, don't. That's another one. Okay. okay, that's beautiful. I love that post-it note. Okay, next post-it note. <laughs> How do you connect with confidence? How do you connect with people confidently? Uh, Give us a couple I, of tips. I guess I just, I'm a, I'm a, a joyful person and I don't carry anger in me and yeah. I'll smile and I'm interested in them you know yeah. if you show someone that you're interested I would say tell me a story you know yeah tell me a story how often do we ask people about them yeah yeah you know That's and I beautiful. think if you open up with that yeah you're showing interest yeah and you know one thing I, I don't want to miss the opportunity to there's, there's two dear friends that I'd love you to mention. Um, so one, I haven't had the honour of meeting, but a dear friend of yours, Eddie Jakku. Yeah. Um, I know his story takes more than a few post-it notes. <laughs> Eddie. Um, yeah. and, and our dear friend, Frank, <laughs> Riverbank Frank, who is the one who connected us. Yeah. So he's telling me, you've got to talk to my friend Nina because she does my Facebook page and, uh, and we've been talking more recently about... Uh, sharing some of Frank's content and a beautiful video that he shared with me. Well, he was just talking to someone I introduced him to and he recited a poem and I captured it and I said, we're putting that on Instagram and, and the Facebook page that you manage, of course. Um, so what would you like to tell us about these two dear friends of yours? Uh, well, I'll start with, well, I should start with Eddie. Eddie Jacou, I've known him since I was three years old when he and his wife came to Australia in 1950 and he was a Holocaust survivor. They were standing on the corner of a street in Randwick. My dad, we'd already arrived the year before. My father had a little car. He was sort of going up. There was a traffic lights. He was standing there with his wife and my father had the window down and he stopped and he heard them speaking in French. And he started talking to them 
gave them a lift and they became very good friends. So Eddie has been part of my growing up life. And then I hadn't seen him for a long, long time. I didn't even know that he was still alive until um, a Holocaust Remembrance Day, our Avoca Beach Picture Theatre always has something special on. And mm -hmm. they were going to have Eddie and I saw him up on the screen that he was coming. And I went, oh my goodness, he's still alive. Yeah. Well, to me, reconnecting with him, and he was like 98, 97 then, was a huge thing. And he was always a dapper man, dressed beautifully. Yeah. And loved just he he said do not hate he always used to say yeah. do not hate but he told me he said I'm so proud of you doing this book Nina yeah we are dying and we cannot let what happened to these people to our people to us it cannot be forgotten yeah and I'm so glad that you're carrying this on so that the stories are still out there yeah. And so he supported me from the Jewish Museum because he was one of the founders of it mm. all the way. He told them all in there to look after me. But, you know, I was really a VIP when I'd walk in there because he was in there with me yeah. and everyone would bow to him. Yeah. He just passed recently, as you know. Yeah. And um, I was invited there. The state government are putting on a memorial for him yeah. at the town hall. Um, which, you know, I was asked, asked to go to. So that's Eddie. Yeah. Oh, Riverbank Frank. He, I met Frank in 1983. He was a young, nice-looking Aboriginal boy in Burke. It was the very first Aboriginal community I had worked in um, as a community artist. Um, I was taken by the Flying Doctor plane cool. to Burke where the government had put in a new daycare set, long daycare centre, which was to be used by the Aboriginal and the non-Aboriginal kids. That was the first time my role as a fabric artist was to work with the mothers of these kids that are going to use it and decorate that centre. We did the curtains, we printed the cot covers, we printed the cushions and everything in there. And I spent a week on the last day, I was sort of getting everything together and I was going to catch the flying plane back to, to Sydney. On that last day, Frank came in. He'd heard that I was in town. I mean, you know, in Burke, I think I was a bit excited, exciting and I was a bit yeah, out. Yeah. And he came in to check me out. <laughs> and and he, he wandered around and he sort of looked at everything. He was the only man that had come in there, like he owned the place. And um, I said to him in my normal way, oh, you know, I didn't, I'd never worked with Aboriginal people before, but I saw people as people, Kerry. Yeah. I see yeah. their heart. I didn't look yeah. at anything else. Yeah. And um, I said, so what do you do, Frank? And he sort of uh, said, um, you know, um, I write poetry, sort of looking down. Yeah. And I went, oh, my God, I write poetry too. Yeah. I live near the ocean and I write poetry around here. And I said, you're all the way out here. Would you share some of your poems with me? Yeah. And he got all sort of shy. I mean, I just threw that in the air, packed yeah. everything up. I was just about to get onto the plane and he came along and he gave me an envelope. Yeah, I wow. took the envelope, got in the plane and opened it up after we were cruising 
Yeah. And I read his first poem, Black Woman, My Mother, the Earth. And yeah. All the hairs raised at the back of my neck. And I, I read the other two and I went, my God, this man is amazing. So I wrote to him when I got back yeah. and I said my poetry and we started communicating that way. Yeah. We've remained free. Yeah. And now he, you know, has shared his poetry you know, in front of huge audiences yes. and, and with the Governor-General and, yes. yeah. At, uh, yes. So he's yeah, my best is. mate. He's one of my best mates and I am his. Yeah. He, he rings me about every day or every second day. Yeah. He, I'm his mate. We share stuff that we wouldn't share with anyone else, you yeah. know. Yeah. Frank goes to his riverbank and he has his peace and he has his fire yeah. and he has his riverbank and his trees yeah. and his, yeah. You know, and he can be out there amongst the people and he can do that because he can go and have his solitude. Yeah, he's a great influence in, in so many lives. And uh, it was actually Frank who was telling me about his experiences with Eddie recently. And because um, Eddie was known as the, the happiest man on earth. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I introduced him. I asked Frank the first time I went down there and Frank came down to Sydney and I said, I'll take you to the Jewish Museum. Yeah. And I, I took him to the museum and Eddie was there and he met Eddie and it was a big thing, but Eddie took him over to introduce him to William Cooper and they have a big thing there for William Cooper, the Aboriginal man that stood up um, stood up and, and did a petition for all his family and took it to the German embassy in 1938. Yeah. And speaking up against what the what they were doing to the Jews. The yeah. only person in all of Australia. Amazing. And they have a, a, a photo and a thing about the story of William Cooper. Yeah. And he's now got a tree in the forest of the righteous in Jerusalem, planted a tree. That's so beautiful. Yeah. So beautiful. I feel like this conversation is one that could get people Googling for all kinds of links and conversations and things we've shared. So we'll share your Thank links. You. And uh, yeah, also Eddie did a, a TED talk at, was he 99 when he did that TED talk? He was 99, 6,000 yeah. people all standing ovation. And what did he say at the end, which I say now, don't walk behind me. I will not lead. Don't walk in front of me. I will not follow. Walk beside me and be my friend. Yeah. And that was Eddie. That is so beautiful. And thank you for being my friend, Nina, and, uh, and a friend to everyone that you connect with. Yeah, Kerry, I really appreciate this. It's been really lovely. Thanks for asking me. So good to talk with you anytime. Okay. Have thank a good you. day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye, love.